0: Listening to The Fret Files, the guitar workshop podcast with Eric Daw.
1: indeed welcome to the show this is the fret files the guitar repair podcast my name is Eric Daw and uh, with me as always is my lovely wife Melissa hi Melissa
2: hello everyone
1: we are uh, coming to you on Father's Day
2: live well Well, well,
1: no not at all live Father's Day 2015 it's not Father's Day when you're listening to this so I don't know why in the world I would mention that well What's wrong with me?
2: We just want to wish all the dads out there a happy Father's Day.
1: And a happy Mother's Day.
2: That was a long time ago. And
1: Merry Christmas.
2: Oh, right.
1: Yeah. What's new?
2: Did you uh, get anything good for Father's Day? Yeah,
1: I did. I got, uh, my lovely wife here got me some really awesome bullhorns.
2: I disagree. That was your son, Isaac, that got you bullhorns. Oh. You're not my father. Why would I get you a present?
1: Well, he's too young to be picking out uh, bullhorns, right? He's
2: no, he picked them out. He eighteen paid for months. Them too. He turned
1: eighteen months today. Yeah, he's
2: yeah. grown up. Yeah, he threw a big tantrum right before bed too. So,
1: oh yeah, that's okay. We uh, almost didn't do the show tonight. We've been doing movie marathons, and. Uh, We've been we've been having we took a break from our movie marathon because I really want to get the show done. I I really do want to make this a monthly podcast, and sometimes it doesn't happen. But I'm I'm really trying to uh, uh, set the goal to have this be a monthly podcast, and maybe who knows in the future I might even make it a weekly podcast. Who knows?
2: We'll have to cut some things out of our schedule,
1: right? Like eating.
2: Uh, yeah.
1: But we've been having a movie marathon of uh, Harrison Ford. Wife trouble movies,
2: man, and they there are uh-huh. a lot.
1: It seems like every movie he made in the eighties and nineties was him having trouble with some woman.
2: Either either he kills his wife, or, or tries to. He's
1: looking for the murderer of his wife,
2: or he's looking for the kidnapper or, of his wife,
1: or his wife murdered somebody secretly.
2: Yeah, so it's it's just a mess.
1: There's uh, presumed innocent, the fugitive, uh, which one? what lies beneath.
2: That one was in the two thousands. Really? Yeah.
1: I think it was later than that.
2: Yeah. Well, but still.
1: I mean, earlier I than was, that. No, I think it's two thousands. There's a bunch of them. What's the other one? What's the there was another one? one.
2: Um. I don't, hmm. called, I don't yeah, know. The kidnapper. That was called. Yeah,
1: it was a Roman Polanski movie.
2: Yeah. Oh, uh, frantic.
1: Frantic. It's called Frantic. Right, and it wasn't really a very frantic movie. It was, no, actually, it was actually a very slow. Slow.
2: Yeah. And Is he ever going to find the kidnappers? It
1: was entertaining. Yeah, he's supposed to be looking for the kidnappers, but instead he's like having a drink at a bar. I don't know. It was cool. It was good. So this has nothing to do with anything. I'm just filibustering my own show because I don't have many questions this month.
2: What's with that, people? I know. Come on.
1: Now, there are a few people who are submitting questions almost every month, which is great. I love it. That's great. But I'd really love it if, you know, if you enjoy the show, send me a question. Make one up. It doesn't have to be about your guitar. Or maybe, here's what I would really love. If you listen to the show and you find yourself disagreeing with something that I've said, write to me and tell me why and state your case. And I'll have a discussion about it uh, on the show. Maybe even I could call you and we could uh, talk about it uh, for the podcast. I think it would be great. Yeah.
2: A lively debate.
1: Because, okay, I've been doing this for 20 or more years, and uh, I've learned a lot. I I feel like I I only present things to you guys that I feel uh, pretty confident about. However, I'm open to the fact, I'm open to the possibility that I could be proven wrong about certain things. And I know that there's people that disagree with me about, uh, for example, um, the... The wood of an electric guitar making a significant tone difference, say ash versus alder or you mahogany. Don't,
2: you or, don't think it does?
1: Uh, well, I think that it that it makes a pretty small difference um, as long as they're all tone woods of pretty close hardness and they're all properly dried, and the weight is is relative. I mean, here's the deal if you hand me two strats of the same weight with the same pickups in it, one's alder, one's ash, I'm not going to be able to tell you which is which. Well. I mean, there's no way. I don't think that I would be able to tell you. But anyway, my point is, maybe you, with the exception of the capacitor debate thing, I really don't want to get into that anymore. Uh, But if you find uh things that you if 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 you find things uh that you disagree with me on uh send me a note you know it's not anything confrontational and we're not going to have some drag out fall down brawl over it i'm just talking about a friendly discourse of I- ideas right Totally. It, it would be great so but uh questions comments anything at all send them my way go to my website ericdaw.com Click the contact link, and you can send me an email there. Or you can call the show and leave me a message, 757-774-8482. You can also text that number. It's 757-774-8482. Should we read uh, this yeah, month's questions?
2: Let's, let's read the questions. Let's jump right in. All right. We get better. Eric, I have a question about the proper way to drill or enlarge the peg holes on a headstock. Say you want to install better tuners on a guitar and and larger peg holes are required. What is the best way to do this? I am sure a bolt-on neck guitar would be easier because you can remove the neck. I am also sure drilling a set neck guitar with an angled headstock in a drill press would be tricky. Mm -hmm. What would the procedure be for Fender and Gibson type electric guitars? How do you do it? Also, I'll try and come up with some more philosophical questions as opposed to specific tech questions. I do really enjoy listening to your animated rants about jazz masters and overpriced capacitors. Uh,
1: somebody enjoys it.
2: Yeah. The question about repairs you wouldn't do was a great one as well. Keep up the good work. I always look forward to the next episode. Zach.
1: Cool. Thanks for submitting a question, Zach. Um, enlarging peg head holes on a headstock. There are a number of different ways to do it, and, uh, it's something that you want to be careful doing because I've seen plenty of split headstocks and plenty of really sloppy work where people just put a drill bit in the old hand drill and start drilling away on their headstock, and, uh, it's really the wrong way to do it. So, um, The old school way is with a tapered reamer, Mm -hmm. and if you don't know what a tapered reamer is, um, you can look that up online. It's a really simple tool, but it's a it's a hand. Uh, well, how do I explain it? It's a tapered reamer.
2: It's it's a it's like a it's yeah it's a T shaped
1: yeah it's a T shaped uh, conical long elongated. reaming bit that you just turn by hand and it gradually as it gets deeper into the headstock it gradually enlarges the hole so the way to do it is you go a little bit on one side of the hole flip the neck around, go a little bit on the other side of the hole and then uh, to finish it off you want to take a file a rasp file of some kind like a round file and uh, take out the excess wood in the middle because you end up with a hole that has a like a lip on the inside or a, flan, a flange, flange, a flange,
2: flange, flange. Uh, yeah, like a little pyramid all around the inside because yeah. of the conical shape of the of yeah, the reamer, right? Because
1: of the shape of the reamer. So that is a way to do it. That it is there's no power tools involved. It takes a little more time and patience, but um, you're not gonna. Rip your headstock off with a with a hand drill. Um, so that's one good way to do it. Um, Stuart McDonald sells a really cool tool called the rear peg hole reamer, and it's part number two zero five nine. If you want to go to Stuart McDonald's website and see it, it's a reamer, but it's not tapered, and rather than um, Being a drill bit that really chews out the wood, it just it just shaves wood. It's just a slick little. It's a slick bit. It's really cool, and it's got a stop on it so that you know the 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 first uh, like quarter inch of the uh, bit doesn't have any cutting power. So you can drill from the rear of the headstock, and it won't go all the way through. It'll stop if you put. Block there, or if you put it against your bench or whatever you're going to do there, and that way, because most tuners, if you're enlarging the holes, let's say on a on a Gibson Les Paul, you're enlarging the holes to go from old style clucins to uh, a Grover Rotomatic. Well, really, it's just the rear of the headstock that needs to be enlarged. the the face, the front of the hole, actually doesn't need to be any bigger, so um, you can uh, use that tool just to make one side of the hole bigger, and the tuner will fit in there, and then the uh, threaded bushing will fit on the other side. It's a slick tool. Look that up. Cool. Stuart, Stuart McDonald should advertise as much as I talk about him. For sure. Right? You should call him. Well, yeah. Maybe I will. Anyway... Uh, th- if you real if you have to take a drill bit to your headstock, please don't. But if you have to do it, just do it incrementally. Use um d- don't jump straight to the size you want. Use a slightly smaller drill bit than the hole that's already there. And what you can do is actually set the drill to reverse. And uh that way it won't catch and rip the wood. You can drill it out with the motor in reverse. And, uh, that way you won't get into too much trouble. But don't. Don't do it. <laughs> Just don't do it. Use either a taper reamer or uh, a, a nifty tool like Stumac makes, the rear peg head reamer. Cool. Yeah. Uh, did he have another question there?
2: Um. No. No, I think you covered it.
1: He says, I'll try to come up with some more philosophical questions as opposed to specific tech questions. That's okay. Man, specific tech issues, philosophical questions.
2: It's all good.
1: Bring it all. I need material to do this podcast. I can't just sit here and uh, make stuff up. Well, I could. I could try.
2: It's hard to do.
1: It's not going to be as interesting. It's just... I, My idea for this show was that it was going to be like car talk, but for guitars, you know? People submit questions, and then I answer them. But, um, I don't know, we may take it a different direction if the questions continue to taper off. I don't know. What are you going to do? Submit questions. Come on. Throw me a bone.
2: All right. Thanks, Zach.
1: Thanks, Zach. Next question.
2: (laughs) Hey, Eric. I love your podcast. This is my third time sending questions for you to answer. That's awesome. Thank you. Do you use a normal straight edge over the frets or a notched straight edge that sits on the fingerboard when straightening the neck before a fret level? And my second question is, what's the best way for keeping a bridge tele pickup quiet from hum? Thanks, Jonathan from Victoria.
1: Cool. Those are two great questions. Uh, I don't have the notched uh rule that you can that you can get from like someone like Stuart Mcdonald i don't have one of those i'm sure that they're handy um but for fret issues I prefer a straight edge that sits on the frets because most of the time fret issues are going on uh, i mean as long as the neck is pretty straight the fret issues are going on um, independent of of little nuances in the fingerboard so um, I've got long straight edges and short straight edges so that you can kind of see you can really pinpoint the high spots on a on a on a neck and so yeah I use this i use flat ones I don't use notched ones good question though but you know there's nothing wrong with notched ones but and the notched one will tell you what the fingerboard is doing not what the frets are doing which is kind of good information to have, but you should be able to tell a lot just by sighting the neck. Uh, but a lot of times that can be kind of a uh, an optical illusion, so it's it's really it's good to uh, to put a straight edge on there. One of my favorite straight edges is this; it's a huge steel bar that I got from Stuart Macdonald, and it's hollow inside, and you can put <clears throat> adhesive uh, sandpaper right. Sandpaper with an adhesive back—you can stick that onto the bar and use that to level an entire fingerboard, or use it on frets. Wow! Well, yeah, it's cool, but it makes a great straight edge.
2: Cool. Mm-hmm. What about uh, the best way from keeping a bridge tele pickup quiet from hum?
1: The best thing to do, and I know that this is not really answering your question, but the best thing to do is embrace the hum. I'm serious. I mean, yeah, single-coil pickups are going to hum, and if you're using a lot of gain, it can be a little much. But I love the tone of single-coil pickups enough that I just deal with the hum and really... It's not that much hum unless you're playing under like a, a neon sign or something that's that's pumping out a lot of stray RF that is making the guitar hum. With that said, there are things you can do. You want to keep the leads short, the lead from the pickup to the controls. A lot of times somebody will swap out a pickup and rather than cut the leads shorter they'll just coil up all the all the wire in there under the pickup or under the under the switch or something and that is a good antenna you you want to keep the leads short you can shield the cavities and it it can help it's not going to change the world for you it's still going to hum uh most of the hum happening on a Tele is coming, really, it's coming from the coil itself. And so the only way to really get rid of the hum would be to shield the entire pickup, which is not something you want to do. Uh, so. Why sh- not? Well, it's not practical. And it also, I mean, if you look at a Telecaster, you know, that pickup is just, it's its just out there, naked. It's out in the open. It's just right there. Right. So, to shield it means to build a metal cage around it of some kind, which is going to change the tone, and it's going to change the look, and it's not practical. I've never seen anybody do it.
2: Hmm.
1: So, you can either live with it, or you can build yourself a giant Faraday cage (sighs) and uh, take it to your gig and play inside the Faraday cage. Do you know what a Faraday cage is? I
2: don't know, but it sounds awesome.
1: Well, that's for another show.
2: Why not? Why not right now? I
1: don't know. It's just a...
2: Okay. Next question. Oh, thanks, Thanks, Jonathan. Keep the questions coming.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate it, man.
2: All right. Hi, Eric. Love the show. I don't like the sweep of the tone pots on my strat. It seems like they don't really do much until you get to the last quarter turn, and then they cut so much treble that they're unusable. It's just a bassy mess with the pot all the way down. I look at the pots and cap, and there's a .047 cap in there, and just normal CTS 250k pots. What can I do to make the sweep more gradual? What can I do to get a more usable tone control in there? Different caps? Different pots? Thanks for your time. From Robert.
1: Robert James. Thanks for the question, Robert. Robert, wherever you are. Uh, that's a great question man I tell you a 0.047 cap is is pretty rowdy and I know that that's spec on on a lot of vintage strats but I uh, does, does he say whether his strat is vintage or if it's a parts caster or a mexi caster he doesn't say he doesn't does he say. no it's just a strat I'm gonna assume that it's a modern strat if it's a vintage strat don't go swapping out parts please. Because you you hurt the value of your guitar, but
2: even just with just capacitors
1: yeah, and because you know you could you could put it back to stock, but the problem is that um you can kind of you can pretty much tell when those solder joints have been untouched, mm-hmm. and once the solder joints have been messed with a lot of collectors that want a pristine guitar um they they're not interested anymore. Huh. Yeah.
2: Interesting. So
1: it hurts the value because it takes it from, I mean, if it were all 100% stock untouched, and then you go and replace the jack or something. And one of the reasons for that is that there's no way to refinish a Strat without unhooking some of the electronics. Yeah. And so if, if all of the solder joints are untouched on a Strat,
2: that means it's the original finish? That means
1: it's the original finish, yeah. Oh,
2: that's cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but there's there's guys that are tricky. There's guys that will pull the wire back because it's cloth-covered wire, and you can actually kind of pull that wire back and clip it up a little higher, and then and
2: and solder, then solder it, there. it
1: there, and then slide the wire back over. I mean, there's you have no idea. There's so many things people can do, but... Yeah, that's the reason why if it's a vintage strat, don't s- switch it out. I don't recommend that. But assuming it's a modern strat or a parts strat, something that you want to mess around with, a .047 cap is is I, I I would expect that to sound really muddy. Um my personal favorite tone cap would be a .015. And uh as per previous episodes, we've already established that I don't care what material, what composition, the capacitor you're going to use. It, it, I don't hear a difference. Orange drop or a ceramic capacitor or if you want a fancy paper and oil cap, great. But 0.015 microfarads is my personal favorite tone cap because um, it doesn't cut near as much bass or it doesn't cut near as much treble. And uh, the .047, you're right when you say once you get all the way down on the tone pot, it just sounds like a muddy mess. I agree. It just cuts way too much of the signal out. So a much lighter uh, tone cap will be a step in the right direction, a .022 even, but a .01 or a .015 is my favorite. Very cool. Uh you know, the other thing you mentioned, pots. You say it's a, a 250k pot. There are different uh, tapers. There are different, they do make different potentiometers. There's audio taper and there's linear taper. There's also reverse audio taper for left handed players uh, or for certain applications. But if, you know, some people prefer a linear taper pot on their tone. So you might have an audio taper pot and you might want to swap it out for a linear taper pot if it's truly the um if it's truly the sweep of the pot that you don't like but from your question it sounds to me like what what you don't like is how much treble it's cutting and in that case i would go to a different capacitor a point oh two two or a point zero one five. what do you think
2: that sounds great yeah thanks robert
1: did that make sense to you? Yeah, you know, because one of the great things I like about doing this podcast with you is that is, I don't
2: know anything about well, guitars. You know,
1: you know more than your than the average person, I think. But if I if if it makes sense to you, then I know that I'm doing a you, decent job of explaining it.
2: That you've dumbed it down enough for me. I'm, I'm not <laughs> trying to insult you. I know. No, I I think I think you've explained uh, linear. Is it? Is that what it's called? Linear Li- pots yeah. to me before, mm. and you drew a diagram. Did I? I think so. All right. Um. Uh, about you know the different levels of of whatever mm-hmm. during yeah
1: yeah. I, there's linear and there's audio. Audio taper pots are also sometimes called logarithmic
2: pots. Mm. Yes. That sounds.
1: They're designed using some kind of algorithm, <laughs> something that I don't know about.
2: Well, cool. Yeah. All right. Next Moving question. On. Hi, Eric. A question for your podcast. I have a seventy-one Fender Strat, and the headstock is pretty orangish compared to the rest of the mm. neck. Mm-hmm. I have seen several of others like these as well, but to varying degrees. Why would only the headstock age and discolor? I thought mine was a weird anomaly until I saw others that looked similar. Is this common? Have you seen this? Thanks. Love the show. Pablo.
1: Cool. Yeah. Great question. It is common on that era of Strats, or Fenders, I should say, late 60s on into the 70s. um, Fenders switched from using a a nitrocellulose finish on their necks to... to a, a polyurethane finish. And for some reason, their decals didn't work with the poly, and I've heard it explained different ways. Either they just thought it didn't <laughs> that it wouldn't work or that it truly didn't work, and I'm assuming that it truly didn't work. I I don't think that they would go to the trouble of doing this if if it if it weren't necessary, but they continued to paint the face of the headstock with nitrocellulose lacquer, while the rest of the neck was covered, was painted in poly, uh, and it's it's all has to do with the decal, and that nitro will orange, and the poly won't. And so I'm assuming what happened is they would paint the neck, and then they put the decal on, right? So all poly, the face of the headstock, everything, all poly. They put the decal on. And then over the decal, they spray nitro. That's my guess. I don't know. But I do know that the reason that the face of the headstock is orange and the rest of the neck is not is because there's lacquer on the face of the headstock and no lacquer on the rest of the neck. The rest of the neck is poly.
2: Interesting. Isn't that weird? That is super weird.
1: And on most fenders where this happens, you can see just on the side of the neck, just on the side of the headstock where the tuners are, you can, you'll can you see where it's oversprayed because you can you can just tell exactly how they painted it so that um, they were also getting paint on the edge of the headstock as well, and there won't be paint on the other edge. You can tell that they just held it in at, at an angle, sprayed some nitro on it, and then I'm sure from the factory that you couldn't tell. I mean, it just yeah. probably looked uniform. But
2: now that it's aged for but, 30 years. Yeah,
1: it's- 40 years later or however long... Fifty years later, um, that nitro, that lacquer ages. It turns orange, and I think it's UV rays that turn it orange, but I don't know.
2: So why why make the switch then? If you're going to use nitro anyway, why not just paint the whole neck nitro? Isn't
1: it weird? I don't know. They they I don't know. I I don't know if it had anything to do with uh, the 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 health hazards of, of nitrocellulose lacquer. Oh. Because poly is pretty nasty stuff, too, so I don't know.
2: I wonder if it was more cost-effective or something.
1: It had to. It had to be a cost thing. It it must have just been a better, it was a modern, better paint that they went to. I don't know. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. But that's why it looks a different color, because it's a different paint. Cool. Thanks for the question, Pablo. Good question.
2: Hi, Eric. I have a topic for the podcast. I have read on many guitar forums about, <laughs> about people sanding the paint out of the cavities of st- strats and tellies to let them breathe. This sounds like voodoo BS to me. What are your thoughts? I'm a 20-year novice player, but really enjoy the podcast. Andrew Wyatt, Memphis, Tennessee.
1: Sweet. Straight from Memphis. Yeah. I've been there once. Cool. Yeah, it's a beautiful town. Uh... That is, yeah, your BS meter is right on, I think. Removing the paint in the cavity of a telly is going to do the square root of nothing to your tone. It's just not going to do a darn thing.
2: It's just a...
1: These people on these forums, I think what happens is you end up with this echo chamber of stupidity, and... (laughs) People come up with dumb ideas and they just reverberate in there to the point that it just bubbles over. And you, I mean, I've seen the craziest things postulated on those forums. I used to post on the TDPRI, the Telecaster Discussion Page forum. I probably haven't posted there for years, but... Man, you see weird stuff on there. Just weird stuff. Like this. Removing the paint from cavity of your telly is going to make it breathe like somehow, like what do you mean breathe? How is that going to breathe?
2: It needs to breathe. Do do you have any other examples of dumb
1: stuff? Oh, if I thought about it. But can you imagine picking up a Telecaster and saying, well this sounds pretty good but if you remove the paint from the cavity to
2: let it breathe
1: it would really sound way better.
2: Yeah, that does. Come on, man. That's insane.
1: Uh, I don't know. I should... You know what I should do for a future episode? I should pull a bunch of uh, crazy guitar myths out of the forums.
2: I think that's a great idea.
1: Yeah, and debunk them. Much like we're going to do in this episode. Oh. Yeah, I've got... After the break, what we're going to do is I've got nine guitar myths we're going to go over. Oh. Oh, yeah. But first, these words from our sponsor... (laughs) This is Jay Boone,
0: owner of Emerald City Guitars in downtown Seattle, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers, not only on the West Coast, but around the world. As we embark on our 20th year of business down here in Pioneer Square, we are striving to continue to bring you great service and great products. We're remodeling our whole store this year, and it's going to be amazing. We're also redoing our website, emeraldcityguitars.com, for our online customers around the world. We'd like to give a big shout-out of appreciation for all your patronage over all the years down here at Emerald City Guitars, and we really strive to continue to bring the best that we can to our customers. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com or visit our shop at 83 South Washington Street in downtown Seattle. Our business line is 206-382-382. 0231, and we're open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Remember, Emerald City Guitars, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers, and service and repair.
1: You know, I don't know if you know this, but my wife makes incredible leather goods, specifically guitar straps. She makes hand-tooled, amazing guitar straps, and she's sitting right here looking embarrassed.
2: Thank you for saying that they're beautiful. And um, if you want to check out my guitar straps, you can head over to melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. And that will direct you straight to my Etsy site, where if you so wish, you can purchase and receive a beautiful, handmade, made-to-order Guitar strap from yours, truly.
1: Do you take custom orders? I do. They're beautiful. You have to see them. Melcoleather.com. Right? Right. Uh, as I make guitars, you know, we share a shop in the backyard there. As I'm making guitars, she's sitting in the other corner making straps, and I see her make these straps. She's so meticulous and so gifted. And Thanks. you're such a craftsman. Craftswoman? You're such a crafty person. <laughs> You're so crafty. Uh, really high quality leather, handmade leather guitar straps. Check them out melcoleather.com. As long as we're plugging sponsors, you know, I might as well tell you, if you are in the Seattle metro area and you need some guitar work done, obviously, I'm going to tell you, you should bring it to me. I mean, I know what I'm doing. As you can tell, I have my own podcast. Clearly, I'm a professional. Right. No, but all joking aside, I do this because uh, I'm hoping it translates into... uh, You know, an entertaining experience for the listener, but it's also... Free advertising. Yeah, advertising for my services, right? But not only to Seattle people, I have customers all over the country that send me work. Not a ton, but, you know, I've got people in uh, the surrounding states, especially Alaska and Hawaii and... There's a few back east. People send me repairs. So if you've got a crazy repair that you need done, hit me up, eric.dot.com Also, I rewind pickups. I repair pickups. I restore vintage pickups. And uh, my prices are competitive. I know what I'm doing. You'll be happy with the results. So uh, I would also encourage you to check out the guitars I make.
2: Ooh. Oh, yeah. What are they called?
1: I send them all over the world you know wow i've I've sold seventy five of them so far I've made and sold seventy five pin up custom guitars p i n u p custom guitars dot com
2: they're pretty cool guitars they are they're
1: obviously replicas of famous fifties guitars that Uh, I'm fanatical about how do you like that for alliteration
2: yeah the thing is Eric has worked on countless guitars that you know that that have the, the holy grail of tone and he has done in depth research on what gives them the tone and he then puts those different things into his own guitars am i right
1: yeah i'm i i don't know it just makes my skin crawl cuz i'm i'm not a self promoter kind of guy and it really makes me uncomfortable to sit here and tell you uh oh, there's a motorcycle going by uh it really makes me uncomfortable to sit here and try to sell myself but you know it's what i do it's how i feed my family and it's um something that i'm passionate about and something that i want to continue to do as long as I can, as long as I'm able, as long as my hands work, I'm going to work on guitars. And uh, so, you know, I have to, uh, I have to plug my services somewhere. Might yeah. as well be on my own show. Look, if I can't plug my services on my own show, where am I going to where Where am I going to do it? Right. Right. Nobody. Nobody's going to start a podcast that that uh, plugs my work. You are. So I had to do it. Right. That's what I'm doing. Great. See how transparent I am. Everything's out in the open. <laughs> I know. I'm being retarded now. Hey, uh, I don't have a copy of these crazy myths, so.
2: Are we about to debunk some yeah, myths?
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's read some myths. So right. here's nine guitar myths. I think we've covered some of them on the podcast before.
2: Well, we're about to cover them again. Yeah,
1: we're going to talk about them.
2: All right. Might as well.
1: The let's first let's go.
2: Guitar myth number one. My vintage Fender was made on my birthday. The next stamp is 3 October 66.
1: Yeah, I see that a lot, people say. This guitar, as you can see by the next stamp, was made on the 13th of February 1967. The month and the year, yes. That number before is not the day of the month. The number before is the model code, and depending on the era, they changed. So, er, like, early on, the code for Stratocaster was 2. Later, it changed to 13, and then still later, it changed to 22. So, if your next amp says, you know, what, what, 2 October 65... That doesn't mean it was made on October second. That means Stratocaster October sixty five. Cool. Yeah. So maybe it was made on your birthday, but you'll never know. And uh,
2: they never—they didn't keep track of what they day did it was not made keep on. track
1: of. No, no, you could never find that yeah, out. that
2: seems insane. Why would yeah. they do that?
1: I know, but a lot of people. I mean, I was watching just recently a very well known, probably the most well known guitar repair guy in the country was doing a video about a vintage telly and he said this one was made on October 3rd, 1966 and I thought you know better than that. He must have just (laughs) forgotten. There's no way that he doesn't know that and I'm not going to say his name but gee whiz. No, that's not the day. That is the model code. Yeah. Cool. Myth number one. Hey, that was fun.
2: Yeah, that was a good myth. Let's move on to myth number two. Myth
1: number two. Drum roll, please. Brr.
2: Locking tuners will solve my tuning problems. Mm-mm. Oh, I hear his, his little cogs are turning. I
1: hate locking tuners, I gotta tell you. Well, I don't hate them. Hate's a strong word. I would never put locking tuners on a, on my own personal guitar. Uh, they're really... What's the word? Unnecessary? Yeah.
2: Extrenuous? What's that word Uh, I'm looking for? I don't know. Extraneous.
1: They're (laughs) unnecessary. Most tuning problems on guitars come from the nut. It's either usually either uh, the nut or the intonation is adjusted incorrectly, or the action is too high. You know, if you think about your string, if it's sitting too high. Then, when you depress it, you're actually raising the pitch of the entire string because you're stretching the string. So, uh, the the tuner is almost never the problem. But people seem to think I have tuning problems. It must be my tuners because that's where tuning happens. But it's almost never, almost never, a tuning machine issue. In fact. The crummiest guitars with the crappiest tuning machines can be made to stay in tune if everything else is dialed in right.
2: So tell me, what's the first thing you do if there's a tuning issue?
1: Change the strings. And the second? Well, that's not always the first thing, because if I'm looking at a guitar and I can tell by looking at it the, the intonation is way off, then I know that it's not just the strings, you know? So right. it depends. It's a case-by-case thing, but... I mean, I, like, I've I've had Dan Electros with the skate key tuners. People who know old Dan Electros will know what I'm talking about. Those skate key tuners are crappy. They're like the worst tuners ever. But if you set up your Dano right, they'll still work. They'll still hold a tune. I mean, the gear ratio on those is probably like 8 to 1 or something. I mean, they're really crappy tuner. But, um... Yeah, locking tuners, not so much. I think they look silly. I think that they are unnecessary in most cases. And, um, I mean, the whole point behind a locking tuner is to eliminate the wraps around a tuner. I've seen a lot of people, they'll put a lock, they'll install a locking tuner in their guitar, and then they'll still string it up like it's a normal tuner. So they'll have a locking tuner with three or four. Winds around the peg around the tuner shaft like it's a normal tuner. Like, why did you even bother putting a locking tuner on there if you're just going to use it like a normal tuner anyway? But, um, yeah, locking. Yeah, your tuners are almost never the cause of your tuning issues. It's usually something else. That's like way way down on the list of tuning problems. Cool. Yeah. Myth number three.
2: Myth number three. All pre-67 fenders have a 100% nitrocellulose cellulo- lacquer finish.
1: Yeah. There's been so much said about this. It's true that before that, the most finishes were lacquer. However, they used undercoats And in the early days, it was an oil-based undercoat. It was a Sherwin-Williams product called Homoclad. And this information comes from the Strat Chronicles by Tom Wheeler, a book celebrating 50 years of the Fender Stratocaster. He says, he claims that in the early days, a Sherwin-Williams product, it's an oil-based product called Homoclad, went under the lacquer finish. So it's not 100%. Nitro lacquer. And then later, they switched to a product called Fuller Plast by Fuller O'Brien. And uh, Fuller Plast is, well, it's plastic. I mean, it's poly. It's, it's, uh, and I used to think, I mean, a long time ago, Fuller Plast, used by Fender. Fenders are made in Fullerton. I thought, huh, is it, was it a Fender product and they just named it Fullerton, Fuller Plast? But no, it's not related to Fullerton. It is made by Fuller O'Brien Fullerplast, and they used that. I think they started using that in 64, 63, something like that. But basically, it's a poly undercoat underneath the lacquer. So people um, seem to think that all those vintage fenders are 100% nitro lacquer, and it's just not the case. It's just not the case. They have undercoats that are not nitro lacquer. And I've also read from pretty authoritative sources that a lot of the custom colors, some of them were enamel and some of them were acrylic lacquer.
2: Wow. And
1: I don't know, I cannot attest to whether or not that's 100% true. I don't know for sure. And I'm not sure if anybody does, really, but... um, that's the that's the rumor. Yeah. Cool. But regardless of what whether the custom colors are nitro or not, they all had undercoats that were uh, not nitro. So. Huh. Yeah.
2: Cool. Are we on myth number 4? I think
1: so, myth number 4.
2: All right. CTS pots are all made in the USA.
1: I wish that that were true so badly. CTS stands for Chicago Telephone Service.
2: That sounds like an American company. You
1: would think that that would mean that it were made in Chicago. And they used to be... um, CTS pots were made in the United States up until about ten years ago or so. They went over to Taiwan. Oh. Yeah, they're made in Taiwan now, which is too bad. Yeah. I don't think... That there is, I don't think you can get an American-made potentiometer anymore. What? I know, I don't think that they exist.
2: Well, somebody needs to start that company.
1: I know, right?
2: That seems like, they're just little things. Yeah. Somebody could manufacture those.
1: Even though they're made in Taiwan now, they're still good, especially for the price. I mean, they're, depending on where you get them, they're a few bucks a piece, you know on up to 6 bucks a piece. Burns Borns B O U R N S. I think that they make pots uh in Canada. So I think you can get Canadian made pots. And I think that there are some uh, I think there are some pots made in Mexico also. So you can get you know North American <laughs> pots but they're not made in America. And if if I'm wrong about that, somebody email me. But to my knowledge, you cannot get a USA-made pot anymore, which is really too bad.
2: Yeah, that stinks. Myth number five. My guitar doesn't need a setup. It's brand new.
1: That is probably the one time that I can tell you for sure your guitar needs a setup. Because even the big guys, Fender, Gibson, Rick... Gretch. Uh, they're really set up poorly from the factory. Unless the store that they got sent to did a setup on it for you, um, I can just guarantee you that your guitar needs a setup. Plus, it was, I mean, say you ordered it off of, the, I don't know, musician's friend or something, it got sent to you from uh, who knows where, Nashville or something, and it's now it's in your climate which is probably different from where it came from. And they don't put the best quality strings on those. They put the crappiest strings they can get on those. Plus, the strings are uh, probably old. I mean, at least a few months old.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, your guitar needs a setup from the factory. They don't dial in the nut slots right. They're always sitting up too high. The next almost always have a little too much relief in them. The intonation, they just set it up, kind of, uh, they just kind of eyeball it. Really, you should have your guitar set up when it's brand new, especially when it's brand new, because, well, not only that, but not only is it not adjusted from the factory, but it's not adjusted to your playing. You know, you might prefer 9s or 11s, and the guitar has 10s on it, so you want to get it set up for your strings, You want to get it set up for your tuning, if you use any weird tuning, and you want to get it set up for your playing style. You might like your action higher or lower, but, um, yeah, the fingerboard should be oiled, it should be dialed in, it should be intonated, and it's just not done from the factory. I just, I guess they just don't have time to do it, or they kind of aim on, they kind of err on the side of caution and leave everything just a bit too high so that it won't buzz.
2: And I feel like when when you're cranking out hundreds of guitars a day, oh yeah. You know, there's just no way to set every no. single one of them up.
1: No. My job in the mid 90s was to set up ibanez guitars from the shipping uh warehouse. And I would set up dozens of guitars a day. And we're not talking about an hour long setup where you really dial everything in. We're talking about eyeball it, ship it out, you know, tune it, does it play, does it cut your hand, ship it out.
2: Well, that doesn't sound like a setup.
1: No, it really wasn't, but, you know, you got good at at dialing it in fast, because you're doing so many a day, but it was kind of funny, I mean, because you, you know... We didn't intonate those guitars. We just kind of made sure that they looked like they were probably close. <laughs> I, that's what they paid us to do. It wasn't my decision. Right. Uh, but I guarantee you from, you know, from the factory, all those, all the brand names, and especially, I mean, gosh, especially the student guitars. Cheap guitars are really not set up well from the factory. They're actually way, way off. Yeah. Anyway.
2: All right. That was a good myth debunking. Yes. Number six. Boutique strings are always better quality.
1: The worst strings I've ever seen are the ones that seem to cost like 30 bucks a pack. You know, like European string, Like everything in Europe they know already. Like you're going to get these European strings and they're going to blow your mind. Well, I've seen it. And I don't want to name names, but those European brand name or boutique handmade handcrafted strings, man, almost every time they they just suck. In a word, <laughs> suck. The best strings are the plain old Coke and Pepsi, kind of off the shelf, D'Addario, Ernie Ball, I'm telling you. Consistency and uh, good tone, and th- thats really the way to go.
2: I think that I think we've talked about this before, but why don't you touch on it again? Why are the hand, the individually made strings a problem? Like, what, what's or what, what's your theory?
1: Diodario pioneered hex core strings a long time ago. You know, way back in the day. Um, the wound strings, uh, wound strings are actually two strings. There's a core and then a wrap, right? Right. And they all used to be round core. And what happens is, uh, the string that's wrapped around the core, um, starts to come unraveled, and once it does... It doesn't intonate right, it sounds funny. And it's almost impossible, you know, in the course of installing it on your guitar, when you when you cut the string, when you bend the string, you're damaging it and it starts to unravel just slightly. I mean not like unravel unravel, but if it
2: all so it has loosen. to do
1: is just loosen a little bit. You want a hex core string. The hex core bites in to the wrap
2: keeps it from yeah coming loose
1: don't buy round core strings don't buy boutique Tomastikoff D and Cuisto d F, Filipino don't buy them man I'm telling you I'm the, telling you
2: were those real brand names yeah I don't know
1: Ernie ball Diodario. they're five bucks a pack they're six bucks a pack depending on where you get them I've seen you know people I think suggested retail on them is 10 bucks a pack. Wow. But most most music stores sell them discounted, but really I you know, I mean it when I tell you I go through so many strings. I mean it when I tell you D'Addario and Ernie Ball is where it's at. Yeah. Sweet. The boutique strings are almost always man, they don't intonate right. You can go crazy. You know, and yeah, some of them have good tone and I appreciate that, but if they don't play in tune, what's the point? And th- really, it's kind of a crapshoot because you might get a good pack and then you might get a bad pack. So, like, what is it going to be? You know, what's wh- which ones it going to be this time for your important gig? You're gonna you're gonna take a crapshoot and put I don't know. And I use flat wounds, but I I use Deodario flat wounds. Deodario chromes. They're great. Diadario really should. They really should advertise on the show. They don't have to. I'm telling you, Diadario. I mentioned Ernie Ball because they're kind of a runner-up to me in my mind, but Diadario is where it's at, man. I work on major players' guitars. And I'm not going to start dropping names, but I'm telling you, they all use Diadario. They all, all of them, use Diadario.
2: Is that because you make them use Diodario? No.
1: They they ask for it. Well, that's I ask them what strings do you use, oh, Diodario. Yeah.
2: You heard it here, folks. Yeah, for sure. All right, myth number 7. Original PAF Gibson humbuckers sound so good because they are they were hound. they were
1: Uh-oh.
2: Can we start that one over?
1: Yeah, go for it.
2: Sorry. Number seven. Original PAF Gibson humbuckers sound so good because they were wound by hand.
1: Yeah, that's false. They were wound by a machine. They're wound. uh, I think it's called a Lisona. Some weird old bobbin winding machine. Hmm. Yeah, they're not wound by hand.
2: Well, that was an easy myth yeah. to debunk.
1: Fender pickups, old Fender pickups were wound by hand,
2: but not not Gibson's.
1: No, and then later Fender went to machine wound. That's my understanding. I wasn't there when I talk about this kind of stuff. It's what I. It's what my research has led me to believe, and I'm I'm trying to use the best sources that I can. But that's pretty common knowledge that the PAFs were not hand wound. They were wound on a machine called the Lisona, and. Those original machines that Gibson used, I know where they are now.
2: Are they in our basement?
1: No. Seymour Duncan has them. Really? Yeah. And he uses them to make PAF clones.
2: Oh, you mean the guy Seymour Duncan, not the company?
1: Seymour Duncan, Well, he's- he is the he's he actually owns that company as right, well. But
2: does does but he does he wind the pickups himself?
1: They, they well, I'm sure he does wind some of them. Really? And yeah, when he's not... I mean, I imagine he has a bunch of high school student flunkies winding pickups <laughs> out on the floor, and he's, like, up above in an air-conditioned office smoking a cigar. But when he does wind pickups, he probably uses the Lisona. And I know that he... they use it... I at least I think they use it to make their high-end PAF clones, whatever they are. I don't know. I'm telling tales out of school. I don't know. But...
2: That could all just be made up, everybody.
1: But uh, I have heard that he owns those original machines.
2: Well, that's pretty cool. I
1: know. If that's true, that's cool. Why not? He should own them. Why not? Yeah. Well, what's Gibson going to do? Make uh, robot tuners with him? Gibson. They're dead to me. Ouch. Have you seen... You know, let me say something about Gibson. You know that smokestack that they're tearing down?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. We talked about it a few episodes ago.
1: What more symbolic thing could there possibly be to represent Gibson's attitude towards its own products? I say tear it down because Gibson, it's just, it's, it's, in my opinion, and the same thing goes for Fender. Fender and Gibson They really they're just dead to me. They there are companies making guitars and they are called Fender and Gibson and they put the names Fender and Gibson on the headstocks, but they they have about as much relation to their 50s guitars as Ford does to to a Model T, you know?
2: Well, I think you made a good analogy there.
1: A modern Les Paul has about as much in common with a 50s Les Paul as a Ford Fiesta does to a Model T. They're made in different factories by different people using different standards and different production techniques using different materials, different uh, different philosophies regarding... Guitar making.
2: But the same body style, right?
1: But they cast a similar shadow. That's about it.
2: So if the Ford Fiesta looked like a Model T, then well, this would be...
1: I guess it'd be more... Okay. Let's say they they have about as much in common as Bruce Jenner does <laughs> to Caitlyn Jenner. All right. Whatever. Next myth.
2: All right. Getting a little political there.
1: That's not political.
2: (laughs) The tone is in the gear, not the player.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously good gear means something, but... uh, And this is something we've talked about on the show before, but uh, definitely tone is in the hands of the player. I've seen it time and time again with so many different players picking up different guitars and they can make the guitar sound like they want it to sound because they're pro, you know? When a guitar player has a recognizable tone, it's usually, you know, attributable to that player and their touch and their hands and the way that they manipulate the strings the way that they play and not a specific amp, or a specific guitar, or a specific pedal. I mean, I've heard people say, well, I need to get a Tube Screamer so I can get Stevie Ray Vaughan tone. Well, you know who else used a Tube Screamer? Kurt Cobain. And you're probably going to sound more like Kurt Cobain than Stevie Ray Vaughan, if, <laughs> you know? Anyhow.
2: All right, are you ready for our last myth?
1: Yeah, myth number nine. nine
2: number nine. Guitars play best with a little relief in the neck.
1: Yeah, not true. I really feel, and I've. This is from experience. Guitars play best with a nice, straight neck. Provided that the fretwork is even and the neck is true. And that's where I start with a nice straight neck. You can put a little relief in the neck to cheat a little bit and to make it um, react a little bit differently, but especially when you're setting up a fender with a seven and a quarter inch radius, fingerboard radius, if you set it up with relief and then you go to try to bend some notes up like about the 12th fret or higher. You try to bend that high E, and it'll just choke out. They set up better with a nice flat neck. You want to adjust the truss rod so that it's flat, and uh, start there. And a lot of you hear it a lot. People will or people will will reference like Fender's setup guidelines, saying, "Well, it should have so many thousandths... Relief in the neck. And uh, I just, I disagree with that. I really, I like to start with as flat a neck as possible. And they do play better if the frets are even one to the next. And if the neck is true and straight, it'll play better with a straight neck than it will with some relief in the neck. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There you go.
2: Nine myths debunked. Yeah. You heard it here.
1: I'd love to hear your feedback. I'd love uh, if you want to submit a question or a comment or if you disagree with something. I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a line, ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link. Then you can fill out an email on a form there. Uh, Or you can call 757-774-8482. Call or text that number to submit a question or comment for the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being part of the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks to my wife, Melissa. Oh, you're
2: very welcome.
1: For co-hosting the show with me. Thanks to Michael Van Dieven over at UFOship.com, where our podcast is posted. Thanks to Emerald City Guitars, and thanks to you for listening. I appreciate it, and I'll see you next month. Bye-bye.